Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. BLACH.com, Block Construction, together building greatness. Artist Works, bluegrass players can learn from internationally recognized artists Tony Trishka, Mike Marshall, and Brian Sutton, and more at artistworks.com slash bluegrass. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. On today's California Report magazine, stories about belonging, about figuring out where you fit in. Young people navigating homophobia at the skate park find a new place to shred. I'm a skateboarder and I'm a queer and that I'm also a female. I can do all of those things and there's other people like me. And taxi drivers try to hold on to their identity while watching their profession disappear. I've heard drivers say things like, if I don't die of old age pretty soon, I'm going to go crazy. Plus a painter who found his true calling walking thousands of miles alone across California's mountains. It's sort of breathtaking up here. It's sort of like mind-breakingly beautiful up here. I always find when I get up here that California kind of makes sense. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Often, as journalists, we meet people who feel like outsiders, who feel like they don't necessarily fit in. We try to get them to share their stories with us, and we develop relationships that are often deeply intimate but fleeting. We interview them about some of their most vulnerable moments, put together a story, and then we usually never see them again. Well, that's not how it went with one story. The California Report's health reporter, April Demboski, produced for our show last fall. Back then, she interviewed a Vietnam vet named Ron Fleming about his search for a sense of belonging. But even after it aired, the story wasn't over. I met Ron at the San Francisco VA hospital. I was working on a story about Vietnam vets and how their PTSD can flare up toward the end of life. I interviewed Ron for about two hours. And a week later, he calls me and he asks me out to lunch. He's careful to say that he noticed my wedding ring. And he says, I don't mean any funny business. He's 74. I stall for a couple of weeks, then eventually say yes. Maybe out of some sense of obligation. Maybe because he has the same name as my dad, who died when I was young. But really, I just like Ron. 
He says things like, We didn't lose that war. Everywhere I went, we literally kicked the crap out of them. We meet at a Chinese restaurant in a shopping center in Oakland. He's wearing a wool VFW beret and suspenders. Bits of Mongolian beef fall into his beard as he tells me the same war stories he told me a few weeks before. Some word for word. For example, this reflection on the insult baby killer. We did kill women and kids. We had to. Because one of the things I learned soon was a woman or a kid will kill you just as dead as an old man will and just as fast. One of the uh, tactics that uh, the VC would use was they would take this cute little girl, about five or six years old, right, strap a bomb on her back and tell her, you see them Americans there? They like little girls. They got chewing gum and candy all that stuff. Go on over there and say hi to them. As I'm trying to think of what to say, a woman one table over interrupts. Excuse me, no one wants to hear about killing children. We're trying to have lunch over here. Ron lowers his head, but keeps his eyes up, like a wolf growling. But he says nothing. I want to crawl into the pot of green tea and disappear. But I force myself to turn around, and I say to the woman something like, we're having lunch too, and this is what we want to talk about. Then I turn back to Ron. He says, let's get out of here. We say an awkward goodbye in the parking lot, and I drive home thinking of all the other things I wish I'd said or done. When the story about PTSD and aging Vietnam vets airs on the radio, I get emails from some vets saying they're still haunted by flashbacks later in life, and thanks for the story. And I get emails from other vets calling me naive and sentimental. They say vets need to man up and get over it. I got a handwritten card from Ron. He didn't say anything about the story. I don't know if he liked it or hated it. He just said, thanks for sticking up for me in the restaurant. He said to call him sometime. He has a lot more stories he can tell. That was The California Report's April Domboski. If you want to hear the original story she produced about Ron Fleming, check out our website, CaliforniaReport.org. So many of us define ourselves by what we do, our jobs. But what happens if what you do is becoming obsolete? That's certainly the case for taxi drivers. Uber and Lyft are decimating an industry that was once a solid profession. That got our show's senior editor, Victoria Maulion, thinking about her stepdad, Cy Berlowitz. He drove a taxi in San Francisco when she was a kid growing up in the 80s. And, you know, he would leave the house in the morning and and then come back and tell me about his day. And it seemed like a really cool job. He'd meet, like, tourists from all over the world, come back with some fun stories. And then he had this hat, and it was this yellow cab official hat, this bright yellow, canary yellow hat with the words yellow cab scrawled across. And 
this patent leather bill. And so you would put it on? I'd put it on. I'd get my stuffed animals out. I would line up some kitchen chairs, and I'd stick the stuffed animals on the chairs, and I'd take them for a ride. And it just seemed like this really official, professional, exciting job. But now, as the taxi industry's crumbling, there are real questions about what the future holds for lifelong taxi drivers. KQED's Sam Harnett went to a taxi lot in San Francisco to talk with some of them. Carl Ditlifson is vacuuming out his taxi as the sun sets on the green cab taxi lot. He's the only driver here. The lot is bare. There's just a cluttered two-person office and a tarp lean-to. It covers a porta potty with a sign that says taxi driver parking only. Didlifson just finished an 11-hour shift. So it was pretty slow today? What's that? It was pretty slow? Yeah, I think on the whole. I mean, I had one good ride. Didlifson says his take-home today will be less than minimum wage. It's pretty usual these days. Back before Lyft and Uber, though, drivers could routinely make $20 to $30 an hour. I used to work four or five days a week, you know, and you were able to survive. I mean, you weren't on easy street by any means, but you were able to survive. You know, if you keep me busy, that's all I ask. Didlifson is wearing a blue hoodie that's worn and pilled. One of his black sneakers has partially separated from the sole. I've lived here my whole life. I've lived in the same house since I was six and a half. It'll be 50 years this April 8th. How close do you think you are to, like, retiring or stopping driving? Oh, I don't think there's retirement in sight. You drive until you die. You know, I mean, whether we like it or not, you know, a lot of us don't have retirements to fall into. The taxi companies themselves are being imploded. Yellow Cab went bankrupt in 2016 and sold for less than a million dollars. The industry is consolidating. The same company now owns Yellow Cab, Luxor, and Citywide. Green Cab, Ditlifson's company, used to have 19 medallions. Now it's down to six, and they aren't even used all the time. Uh, I want... Uh, to show Sam the shift schedule. Oh, okay, sure. And you see all the yellow on here are unfilled shifts. Uh, the schedule is shot through with yellow. Filled, uh, Mark Gruberg is a taxi driver and co-founder of Green Cab. He says Uber and Lyft have even taken away cab drivers' biggest paydays. And you see, we, we have two open shifts on, on Valentine's Day. Halloween, St. Patrick's Day, even New Year's Eve, all the same. Gruber says drivers have lost between a third and half of their income. There we have. Devorah Sears, the office manager, is adding up what drivers earn today. There's days when, you know, there's just some guy will come in and say, I had three fares today. Because it's, it's like going out there and playing Russian roulette. The sort of dignity that people got from their work when they were full-time professional drivers is just not possible with Uber and Lyft. Vina Dubal is a professor of law at UC Hastings. She did an ethnographic study comparing cab drivers to those for Uber and Lyft. She says these ride apps are destroying the stable, long-term jobs of the taxi industry. Because of how low the fares are, they have to drive and drive and drive and drive and drive for an inordinate amount of time in order to eke out a living. Dubal says the app drivers are way more atomized, isolated. There's no taxi lot and less of a sense of community. They just flip on the app and drive, feeding customer demand for cheap, convenient rides. Consumers who use these ride services are absolutely complicit in it. I've heard drivers say things like, if I don't die of old age pretty soon, I'm going to go crazy. Joe DeSalvo just arrived at the Green Cab office for his shift. He has a bright, bushy white mustache and bifocal lenses. He's been driving since 1984. I'm 74, and if I was younger, I'd just leave. I'd get a second job or go do something else, but my time's passed for that. 
I have to do what I've been doing as, for as long as I can and make, make it work somehow. DeSalvo says he's stuck. He took out a loan to buy a medallion. That's the license to operate a cab. Back in 2010, the city started selling them for $250,000 apiece. Taxi drivers could then rent the medallions out and make passive income. It was the de facto taxi retirement plan. Now DeSalvo says a medallion is pretty much a worthless piece of tin and a huge financial burden. There are drivers who are applying for food stamps now and welfare, and I haven't done it yet. I haven't had to, but this is the first year I've been underwater. DeSalvo finishes the tiny Dixie cup of water he's drinking, crunches it, and drops it in the trash. Well, good luck tonight. Hopefully, hopefully Thank you very rides. much. Yeah. Right. Thank, you, thank you for letting me vent. <laughs> All right. That'll keep me going for, the, for a while. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett in San Francisco. This week on our show, we're talking about trying to find a sense of belonging, trying to fit in. We heard about a Vietnam vet with PTSD and from taxi drivers trying to hold on to their identity as their profession withers. Later, we're going to take a hike with a guy who felt like a misfit as a teen, but who's found his place in California's wilderness. But first, we're headed to the skate park. Skateboarding is definitely a California sport, but it also has a reputation for being a pretty macho sport, dominated by straight white guys. For queer people, women, and people of color, a skate park can be a very unwelcoming place. Bianca Taylor tells us about a new space where skaters can celebrate all those identities, shredding with pride. Growing up in Oakland, Jeffrey Chung felt like he lived in two different worlds. In one, he was gay. And in the other, he was a skateboarder. It was clear to him that the two didn't mix. Nobody else knew he was gay, but when he went to the skate park, other skaters threw around the word gay as an insult. I would get called, like, faggot a lot, or, like, that's so gay, and, like, you're gay. <laughs> like, just a very homophobic. It's not very um, welcoming, and I remember feeling very ashamed about myself and sexuality. So when Jeffrey was 18, he decided to stop skating. It was just too hard to live in both worlds. Gabriel Ramirez grew up in Southern California, but he also lived in those two worlds. In high school, he wanted to try skateboarding. I was just too afraid to experience what would happen if, you know, people found out that I was gay. Gabriel remembers the day he met Jeffrey at UC Santa Cruz. Finding out that he was gay and skateboarded, my mind was blown. Gabriel and Jeffrey started dating. They moved to Oakland, where they skated, played music, and made zines. At the end of 2016, their worlds were rocked. First, by the presidential election. And then, they lost a friend in the ghost ship warehouse fire. As their queer and artist communities grieved, they felt pushed to act. So, Jeffrey pulled out a Sharpie and made a flyer for a queer skateboarding meetup in a parking lot. It was low-tech and low-expectations. Just bring your board and show up. The first one was just amazing. So many people came, and it was just a space where everyone could just feel welcome. It went so well, they decided to do them monthly. Now, a year later, this monthly meetup has a name, Unity Skateboards. Jeffrey and Gabriel continue to organize queer skate days in the Bay Area, and up to 60 people show up each month. What started as a casual meetup in a parking lot is now a community of people, skaters and non-skaters, queer and straight, who all want to shred. 
And now they actually have a place to come together indoors. With money earned from their full-time jobs, Jeffrey and Gabriel are renting the top floor of a bookstore in downtown Oakland. Jeffrey says it's important to have a permanent safe space for their community. The walls of the wooden loft are covered with skateboards and artwork. There's a printing press in one corner, a couch in the other. It reminds me of a clubhouse. The tiny shop is packed for the opening party. Luis Albin has been skating with Unity for almost two years, and she says it's helped her learn to love all of her identities. I'm a skateboarder, and I'm a queer, and that I'm also a female, and that I can do all of those things, and there's other people like me. Luis started skating when she was 11. My mom, like, hated it. She thought girls shouldn't be skating, and I was like that young, defiant teenager, and I was like, I'm going to skate anyway, and so I did. Louise found out about Unity Skateboards on Instagram. She sent Jeffrey a video of herself skating. He mailed her back a skateboard and an invitation to come skate with them. Louise moved from her home in Yukaipa a few months later to attend her first queer skate day, and she's been in Oakland ever since. Unity's founder, Jeffrey Chung, says now he has the most queer friends he's ever had. If there was something like this when I was younger, it would have changed my life entirely. He says he wouldn't have felt so alone and ashamed of being gay. But now, with Unity Skateboards, Jeffrey hopes he's making it a little easier for the next generation of young people to find acceptance at home, at school, and at the skate park. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Oakland. Coming up, more stories about feeling like an outsider and trying to find a sense of belonging. But first, we're going to take a little detour. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Modesto. We've been asking listeners for ideas for our series about California towns with unusual or surprising names. And you've been sending a lot of great suggestions. David Strubba from Merced wrote us, asking about a place just north of him, Modesto. So we called up someone who works for the city to find out just how Modesto got its name. My name is Wayne Mathis, and I live in Modesto, California. I've been living in Modesto for 40 years. Modesto was founded in 1870 as a result of the railroad coming down through the Central Valley. And it originally was called Ralston. And it was named after William Ralston, who was a powerful financier, started the Bank of California. He declined to have the town named after himself. And so a person involved in the layout of the town said, oh, he was very modest, and the Spanish word for being modest was Modesto, and so that's how Modesto got its name. The surrounding river towns, the people in those towns, packed up all of their belongings, including their houses, and literally moved them to Modesto because the railroad was a dependable source of transportation. There was one hotel called the Ross House, and they literally cut it in two. And February of 1871, 
the hotel had been put back together and they had a grand opening here in Modesto. That interview with Wayne Mathis, who works for the City of Modesto's Parks and Rec Department, was produced by Nadine Sabai. You can send us your suggestions for a place called What? at CalReport at KQED.org. A man wearing a big straw hat is sitting by a creek. He's got a scraggly beard that evokes the naturalist John Muir. He's taking out supplies from his backpack. Paintbrushes, headlamp, sketchbook, tiny hammer, box of paints. Yeah, so I got my, my little six-foot tape measure here to measure lichen samples. There's a couple of, there's a couple of really beautiful lichens uh, I've been measuring for a couple of years on this mountain that uh, grow at about a millimeter or two every year. He collects some creek water in a bottle, mixes it with his brush, and begins a watercolor of an oak tree. I'll paint one individual thing. So it's really just like writing. Here I am sitting next to this big California live oak. Undo my brushes and I, I get the uh, brush nice and wet with the river water and I go right to the paint and then on the paper. Obi Kaufman is a painter with a very detailed eye. And this tiny stuff, these individual lichens and tree branches, are what inform the big ideas in his new book about California that's selling faster than they can print it. It's called the California Field Atlas, and it's a thick book of maps. Not road maps, but hand-drawn watercolor renderings of a wild California, with descriptions and reflections on its mountains, rivers, and creatures. It's a kind of love letter. I was lost in a swoon for California. Obi spent years visiting every California county to craft the book. He walked thousands of miles of trail from the Carrizo Plain to the Siskiyou Wilderness. One of his favorite walks is on Mount Diablo in Contra Costa County, where he's taking me on a hike today. How about this gorgeous green cloak, huh? I know, it's beautiful. We're at the base of the mountain, which is carpeted with lush winter grass. It's so quiet that all we hear is birdsong and the occasional plane flying overhead. We're talking as we walk along a trail, and I take his book out of my backpack. I mean, what I really liked about looking at the maps in your book is that, you know, the outline of California is so familiar, but you're filling it in in all these unexpected ways. I'm less and less interested as I go on in years as a naturalist and as a painter in one specific thing, in one specific species. I spent the last several decades trying to figure out the names for all the flowers, the names for all of the trees and shrubs, rocks and birds. And now I'm much more interested in the way it all fits together in these larger systems. So he's painted a map of all the fir trees of California, Another of wildfire hotspots. Another of all the wildflower blooms. There's even a map of all the places you can find wild pigs in California, in 56 of the state's 58 counties. If you see one, look for a tree and climb it. Because they just have just a bad attitude. They'll bite, they'll, they'll charge, they'll hurt you. Pigs might scare Obi, but not rattlesnakes or mountain lions. He grew up learning to hike and camp among them 
here on Mount Diablo. I mean, I've taken so many naps unwittingly next to tarantula nests where they wake up and they climb up on me. Like, I don't know if they're looking for dryness or warmth or just love. He was a lonely teenager and spent hours making maps of this mountain as a kid. He gave many of the individual trees on these slopes unique names. Left Bank Hummingbird. I would name them after uh, angels from Milton's Paradise Lost. Obi moved from L.A. to the Bay Area community of Danville in the shadow of this mountain when he was five. His father was a world-renowned astronomer who had headed up the Griffith Observatory. He gave me the biggest perspective. So even though I'm 20 years on from the death of my father, I am grateful to be afforded this opportunity to continue that conversation with the greatest scale of things. For me, as California, for him, was you know, the universe. Now in his 40s, Obi's definitely spent much of his adult life sleeping under the stars. A lot of people say, oh, you're living the John Muir lifestyle, you, you know, eating berries and sleeping in trees all the time. It's like, well, yeah, I do that, but, but I also have an apartment in downtown Oakland. As we climb the mountain, Obi talks about how observing things at a walking pace is so much more interesting than what you see driving. He likes how trails follow the natural topography. It begins to tell a story that you can read. You know, looking around here, up from the Buckeyes and the Blue Oaks, coastal sagebrush. You go up into the Valley Oaks and the Gray Pines. And I think that that kind of narrative, that really subtle story, only unfolds at a walking pace. By the time we reach the summit of Mount Diablo, I'm starting to see things from Obi's point of view, the watercolor view of California. Yeah, we're up here in the crow's nest of California. We're got, it's sort of breathtaking up here. It's sort of like mind-breakingly beautiful up here. I always find when I get up here that California kind of makes sense. You can kind of see the whole thing. You sure can see the all of the Sierra Nevada, and you really get a sense for just how long it is. It's like 400 miles long. It's the longest contiguous mountain range in America. And on the other side, you can see across on a clear day to the Farallons. On a clear day, you can see almost clear down to the Tehachapi Mountains, where the grapevine are. And you can see Sutter Buttes out there to the north, and... Uh, Gosh, you can't quite see Shasta out there, but for the haze. Obi Kaufman's California Field Atlas renders the state more beautiful by filtering out the urban stuff, so you only see its wildness. It's a 500-page book. It's really too heavy to take with you on a hike, and it won't point the way home. But it does open your eyes to a new way of seeing California. Last week, we brought you the story of the Isometrics, the synchronized figure skating team from Oakland, getting ready to represent the West Coast at the National Championships. This year's program will be skated to Elvis. The king is back. The Isometrics are older skaters. 
And by older, we mean over 25. And spinning is fun, but I get dizzy. It's like, okay, I can't get myself off the ground as easily. And when I spin, I'm like, whoa. Well, we're happy to report the isometrics made California proud. They won third place in their division and are taking home the bronze medal. If you missed that story last week or any of the stories on the California Report magazine, you can hear them on our podcast. Just look for the bear-wearing earbuds wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can let us know what you think about our show on California Report's Facebook page or email us at calreport at kqed.org. Our director is Susie Racho. Rob Spate is behind the board this week with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Victoria Maulion is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks. Nadine Sabai is our intern. The California Report's editorial team includes Tanya Mosley, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to manage and track accounts from investments to retirement planning. Personal Capital, serving over 1 million people at personalcapital.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2018 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts.
to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.